You are listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast, an honest and non-judgmental discussion on faith in God and the doubts we often have, why it's sometimes difficult to trust God, and how we can know with assurity that He loves us. This show centers on strengthening and rebuilding our faith after loss, tragedy, or when coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. Now, here is your host, Gene Curl. Hello and welcome back to Recovering Faith Podcast. I'm your host, Gene Curl. Today's episode is a continuation on problems with the Book of Mormon. And this episode is going to cover the Book of Helaman and the Book of Third Nephi. But before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about something that's been in the news. Uh, you may or may not have heard but the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, just recently announced that missionaries will now be allowed to call their families or video chat with them or text them every Preparation Day. And a Preparation Day is the one day a week where the missionaries get to uh, do things they need to do, like do laundry, do the shopping, write letters. And when I was on my mission, I was only allowed to call home twice a year, Mother's Day and Christmas. And even when my stepfather was in the hospital, I wasn't allowed to call home because it wasn't on one of those two two days. And so when I first heard this announcement that missionaries can call home whenever, any time they, or any preparation day they want, they can call home uh, once a week, it kind of upset me. And it took me a while to figure out why it upset me. Part of the reason I was upset is because they didn't allow missionaries to call home uh, any more than twice a year before. But it was also because the reason they gave for not allowing missionaries to call home is they said that calling home more often would distract you from your mission. And it would get you thinking about things at home rather than what is going on there in your life at the mission. And so, but I think the reason they went ahead and changed it is because there has been too many missionaries who are depressed and going home early because they don't get that support from talking to their family. On my mission, at first, I got a lot of letters And then by six months in, the letters pretty much dried up, except for letters from my mother. And by the time I was out a year, even my mother didn't write that often. And sometimes uh, I would go weeks without getting a letter at all. And for that and a lot of other reasons, I was deeply depressed on my mission. But I would have never broken the rules to call home or to do anything like that but apparently a lot of missionaries break the rules and call home anyway and that's another reason why they decided to go ahead and let missionaries call home so uh, if you're interested in that story you can just um, do a quick google search it'll come up but I probably wasted enough time talking on that topic so I'm going to move on to this actual topic of the podcast which is the Book of Mormon. And this segment of the series of problems on the Book of Mormon, or 
the, which is supposed to be the most correct book on earth, takes us through the book of Helaman. And as I said, third Nephi. Early on in the book of Helaman, in chapter 3, it is mentioned that the people migrated north and built buildings and cities of cement because there was not much in the way of timber in that part of the land. And it says that they were exceedingly expert in the workings of cement. The Book of Mormon is somewhat vague about geography and gives sparse details. Intentionally, I think, but even with the details the book does give us, it can be determined that the geography in the book does not match any actual place on earth. If we are to believe the account of the Book of Mormon to be true, we would have to assume the writers were either not good with directions, and a good argument could be made for that considering how many times the people in the Book of Mormon got lost. Or perhaps they were just ride, uh, bad about writing about geography and direction. A more likely explanation, though, is that Joseph Smith either didn't know much about geography or wanted to make sure that to not say too much about it. He didn't want to tag it to any specific place so that it wouldn't come back and bite him. Anyhow, back to the cement. Since we don't know where the people were to start from or where they went north to, we can't say for sure where they supposedly built their concrete cities. But the only place we have found any evidence of ancient cement in the American continents is around the Yucatan Peninsula. So the people could not have gone too far north, despite the fact that Helaman 3-4 says that they traveled an exceedingly great distance. At best, the people in the book were embellishing their accomplishments with cement and how far they spread upon the land, because there is no real evidence to support any northern concrete cities or the vast civilizations that they claim. Helaman 5.9 says, Yea, remember that there is no other way nor means whereby man can be saved, only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, which agrees with the Bible, but disagrees with what Brigham Young said about Joseph Smith deciding whether or not we enter a heaven. I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, but one of the reoccurring themes in the Book of Mormon is that God blesses the people, they become prideful, the pride leads to sin, and then uh, they are punished and they lose their riches, which causes them to humble themselves and repent. Once the people repent, they are blessed with riches again and the cycle starts over, all over again. What I have never understood is why, God being all-knowing, that he would keep giving the people riches even though he knew it would cause them to forget him and to sin. It looks like he would have just given them enough to get by but not enough to make them prideful. Another thing that has always bothered me from the first time I read the Book of Mormon is that when Lehi blessed his uh, and cursed his sons respectively, he told Laman and Lamuel that their sin would be a skin of darkness to come upon their, them and their seed, but that if they would repent, the curse would be removed and they would be like their brethren, which is to say white. But in the book of Helaman, all the Lamanites are righteous, even to exceed the righteousness of the Nephites, yet the curse was not removed. You might notice that I am skipping huge sections of the book of Helaman 
but that's not because it is free from error, but rather because they are errors that I've already covered extensively in earlier installations of this series. I have also skipped sections of Helaman and the rest of the Book of Mormon where the errors could feasibly be explained by the people uh, written about in the book just not being overly intelligent and the leaders on both sides being bad at war, such as not figuring out how to lay a proper siege or to defend a city and leaving a defended city to fight an enemy, just to mention a few. If you have not already read or listened to the earlier sections of this project, I would recommend that you check those out. I know that I've mentioned it before, probably in every part of the series, but the Book of Mormon is constantly having the Holy Ghost play a, mo a major role and baptizing with fire before Christ had even come, instead of fulfilling the role that he had before Christ. The Bible is clear that the Holy Ghost did not come to be a helper and a constant companion or to baptize with fire until after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the only way to justify people being filled with the Holy Spirit before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is to portray the Bible as flawed and untrustworthy, which is also the only way to justify most of the doctrines of the LDS Church. Because of this, the LDS Church teaches that the Bible has been corrupted and that many of the important things have been taken out or changed, but there is no proof of this. For evidence that the Bible has not been corrupted or changed, read the book Can We Still Believe the Bible by Craig L. Bloomberg. Uh, that book lays out a really good explanation as to why we can trust the Bible, and it's well worth your read. Helaman 5.45 clearly has people experiencing an experience like that of the day of Pentecost, written about in the book of Acts, with the speaking of tongues and everything. And behold, the Holy Spirit of God did come down from heaven, and did enter into their hearts, and they were filled as if with fire, and they could speak forth marvelous words. Helaman 12.7 seems to disagree with LDS doctrine when it says, Oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men! Yea, even they are less than the dust of the earth. Because the LDS Church doctrine teaches that we are created and destined to become gods if we follow all the rules. As Marion G. Romney said, the truth is, my beloved brethren and sisters, man is a child of God, a God in embryo. And in the teaching by Joseph Smith and other prophets, uh, it's clearly taught that man is to become like God someday. In the 14th chapter of Helaman, we read about a Lamanite prophet named Samuel, who is preaching to the unrighteous Nephites. At this point in the story, the Lamanites are more righteous than most of the Nephites, and there is no mention of the curse being removed from them on account of their righteousness. Samuel tries to preach to the Nephites before, or he tried to preach to them before, and they ran him out. So now he climbs up on top of the wall that's surrounding the city, and he's preaching to them. And one of the main things he wants them to know is that in five years the Messiah will be born in the Holy Land. Samuel said that Jesus is the Son of God, the Father of Heaven, the Creator of all things, and which is in Helaman 14.12, which agrees more with the Bible than it does with Mormonism. 
Samuel gives some signs of the coming of the Messiah, verses 2 through 6, so that the people may know that he has been born. And the signs include great lights in heaven, a day and a night and a day, as if it were one long day, a new star in the sky, and a vague mention of many signs and wonders in heaven. The people in America, according to the Book of Mormon, were giving a lot more signs of the birth of Messiah than those in the Holy Land. But since the birth of Jesus took place on the other side of the world, and they would not have had the option to just ride over and check it out, I really don't have a problem with the signs Samuel talked about uh, for the Advent. What I have issues with is what was prophesied to happen when Jesus died, which happens in verses 20 through 28. Samuel prophesied that when Jesus died, the sun, the moon, and the stars would be darkened, and there would be no light for the space of three days, which in my mind is just the Book of Mormon trying to wand up the Bible because it was only dark for three hours in Jerusalem, where Jesus actually died. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it was complete darkness in or that the stars and the moon were not visible. It just says that it was dark. The Bible gives us very little information about the darkness other than it was dark for three hours. Samuel also said that the Americas would be subject to thunder and lightning for many hours, that there would be great destruction among the people, and that when it was done, the dead would rise. I'm not going to get into the dead rising at this point, other than to mention that if taken in context, Helaman 14.25 would have people rising up from the dead in complete darkness, and as such, they would have a difficult time showing themselves to anyone. My major beef with this prophecy is that it doesn't make any sense for it to be dark for three days on the other side of the world from where the Messiah was actually killed, while there was only three hours of darkness where he actually died. Three hours of darkness in the middle of the day would be sufficient to convince people that Jesus had died. And there is absolutely no reason why there would be three days of darkness in, Amer in the Americas on the complete other side of the world from where he actually was killed, when there were only three hours of darkness where he actually suffered and died. This is, in my mind, yet one more attempt by Joseph Smith to make the Book of Mormon try to upstage the Bible. But when you add too much, it's no longer believable. When I was a kid, my family was camping in the mountains of Colorado, and one evening I saw a small black bear on the other side of the river, so I ran and told my parents about it. My sisters weren't with me when I saw the bear and they missed out, but wanting to be part of the excitement and the story, they told their own stories. One sister said that she saw the cub and its mother and that they climbed a tree. My other sister said that she saw a panther and the panther scared the bears away. And oh, by the way, the panther was pink. My parents might have believed my sister's story about there being two bears, even though it was an obvious attempt to upstage my story. But when my other sister told her story of the pink panther, it was determined that we were all making up stories, even though my story of seeing a small bear on the other side of the river was not only plausible, but actually true. If my sister had added slightly to my other sister's embellishment of what I saw, she might have been believed, but she took it so far that believing her story was out of the question. The severe destruction in the Americas when Jesus died, in Jerusalem, is the biggest issue I have with the story. When Jesus died, the Bible records in three of the four Gospels 
the three hours of darkness. The temple of El being torn, the centurion acknowledging Jesus as God, and the dead rising. But only one, Mark, mentions anything about an earthquake, and none of them mentions anything about lightning or thunder. From the Bible and from external sources, we know that there was no devastating earthquakes or natural disasters that laid waste to cities in the Holy Land around the time of the death of Jesus, so there is no reason for it in America. One of my major issues with all the destruction in the Book of Mormon when Jesus died is that in 2 Nephi 10.3 it says, Wherefore, as I said unto you, it must needs be expedient that Christ, for in the last night the angel spake unto me that this should be his name, should come among the Jews, among those who are the more wicked part of the world, and they shall crucify him, for thus it behooveth our God, and there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. So, if the nation of Israel is the only nation in the world evil enough to crucify their God, and they were not visited with death and destruction in retaliation for their murder of the Messiah, then what on earth were the people in the Americas being punished so severely for? By the way, the Romans, not the Jews, crucified Jesus. While it is true that the Romans only killed Jesus at the behest of Jewish leaders, it was ultimately the Romans who had killed him, despite the fact that they found him not guilty. If the Jews had killed Jesus, he would have been stoned to death, and they probably would have done so anyway if they hadn't been under Roman rule. But since they were under Roman, under Roman rule, um, they couldn't just do capital punishment. They had to run it by the government, which was Rome. The book of 3 Nephi starts with the wicked deciding that if the signs prophesied by Samuel the Lamanite don't happen at a certain time they decided on, that they're going to put to death all those who believed in what Samuel said. And they picked a day for that purpose, but the signs of the birth of Jesus are shown and the crisis is averted. In 3 Nephi 1.14, it clearly lays out the Trinity when God says that he will come in the, to the world to do the will of both of the Father and the Son, of the Father because of me, and of the Son because of my flesh. And behold, the time is at hand, and this night shall be the sign given. This verse clearly says that Jesus is not just another God, but is God, and does not support the view of, a, of the Godhead taught by the LDS Church. In 3 Nephi 1.21, it talks about how the people of the Book of Mormon were given a new star and a night without darkness. This is another instance of the Book of Mormon trying to one-up the Bible. There is no real reason to have a night with no darkness in order to prove to the people that the Messiah had come as a new star in heaven and the many signs and wonders Samuel talked about should have been enough. In 3 Nephi 2.14-15, it tells us that the righteous Lamanites were blessed for their righteousness by their skin turning white. And it came to pass that those Lamanites who had united with the Nephites were numbered among the Nephites, and their curse was taken from them, and their skin became white like unto the Nephites. I never understood why the Lamanites, Ammon and his crew converted many years earlier, as recorded in the Book of Alma, did not turn white, because by practically any standard, they were arguably the most righteous people in the entire story from the front cover of the Book of Mormon to the back cover. 
It also makes no sense that when the Nephites sinned, even when their sin far exceeded that of the Lamanites, their skin stayed white. And instead of cursing them with dark skin, God decided to have them mark their own foreheads with paint, as the uh, some groups did in the throughout the Book of Mormon. The second article of faith says that all men will be judged for their own sins, but the Lamanites were clearly judged by the sins of their fathers for many, many generations, even when they became more righteous than the Nephites. And by the way, I don't actually think dark skin is a is a curse or any kind of disadvantage, uh, but just based on what the Book of Mormon is telling us, it's telling us that it was a curse and that they were cursed because of something their father did or their fathers did and that when even when they were righteous, it wasn't removed for quite a long time. So a lot of generations, even when they became righteous, were judged by their father's actions and not their own, which goes against the articles of faith. Another thing that the Book of Mormon makes a huge deal about, from Alma to Moroni, is the Gadianton robbers and their secret works and combinations. And it makes it clear that the reason they kept so many secrets and did not allow anyone on the outside to know what they were doing was because their works were evil, or works of darkness. Yet the LDS Church has secret works in their temple and says that they are not secret, but sacred. In the entirety of the Bible and in the entirety of the Book of Mormon, the only things that, ha that are kept secret are sinful and wicked things, and everything God does is made known to all, which makes it a hard sell to convince people outside the church that the temple ordinances are kept secret because they are sacred. The Book of Mormon is constantly upping the ante on the scales of death and destruction. With all of the major battles that have taken place before this time, uh, which is uh, 19 to 22 AD, including multiple battles in the Book of Alma where so many people died they could not even be counted. 3 Nephi 4.11 opens, uh, ups it again. And it says, And the battle commenced in this the sixth month and great and terrible was the battle thereof. Yea, great and terrible was the slaughter thereof, insomuch that there never was known so great a slaughter among all the people of Lehi since he left Jerusalem. Even later in the story in 3 Nephi, which is uh, 421, it says that they were slain by thousands and tens of thousands. After the major battles in the leader of the Gadianton robbers was captured and hanged until he was dead. Keep in mind that the Book of Mormon has gone out of its way to tell the reader that the people were living the Law of Moses. But the people living the Law of Moses would not have hanged a person as the law mandated specific punishments for specific crimes and gave specific uh, ways that they were allowed to do capital punishment. And the allowed method of execution was stoning the convicted person, burning them, decapitation, or in the case of capital punishment, or, or a capital offense, I mean, which this would clearly count as a capital offense, being impaled. Hanging was not listed among the options in the Law of Moses. If you have ever known someone who always brags about having a great story, uh, and they say that they can't tell you that story because they're not allowed to tell it or that you won't understand it. 
Well, that is the Book of Mormon. And in multiple places in the book, it says that there were great things spoken that couldn't be written, or that the writer didn't have the power to write them, or that there was no room left on the plates to write them, or that they were commanded not to write them. 3 Nephi 7.17 is one of those verses, and it says, And he, Jesus, did minister many things unto them, and all of them cannot be written, and part of them would not suffice. Therefore, they are not written in this book. Typically, when a person talks about some great secret they have, but that they can't tell it, it's not as great as they make it out to be, and it's usually not even worth hearing. Many LDS apologists defend passages that make the claim about things that can't be written by citing John 20, 30-31, that says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that ye may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The Bible makes it clear that while it does not contain all that Jesus did, it contains all of the important things and certainly all that we need for salvation. In chapter 8 of 3 Nephi, it talks about all those cities that were destroyed when Jesus was crucified. And the story is told for two reasons. To fulfill the prophecy of Samuel, and to give a plausible explanation for not finding the vast cities written about in the Book of Mormon. Of course, having cities covered up by mountains, falling into the sea, etc., does not really explain the lack of evidence for the massive cities and civilizations, as not all the cities were destroyed, and a lot of the cities that were destroyed were rebuilt, and a lot of new cities were built after that as well. God doesn't just destroy cities and kill multitudes of people. In chapter 9, he audibly tells the survivors the reason he destroyed all those cities, and he tells them that the, he destroyed them because of their wickedness. But obviously, they weren't as wicked as the inhabitants of the nation of Israel, since we learned earlier that they were the only people wicked enough to kill their God. If you recall, though, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, which is in Luke 23:34. And laying waste to cities of people who were not even responsible for his death and were not as wicked as the people who had put him to death does not seem in character for a man who asked for those who were beating and crucifying him to be forgiven. It also makes no sense that an audible voice of God would be heard in the Americas and not in the Holy Land. Nor does it make sense that the people clearly heard the voice of God when he was telling them why he had given most of the population a smackdown, and yet they couldn't understand what he was saying when he announced the arrival of Jesus Christ among them a short time later, which you'll read in chapter 11. When God announced the arrival of Jesus, he had to say it three times before the people understood what he was saying. When Jesus finally does come down among the people, he gives the Nephites the authority to baptize, which is found in 3 Nephi 11.21. But Nephi was not only baptizing before this point, but it tells us in chapter 7 that he ordained others to baptize as well. So either Nephi was baptizing without authority before, or else he already had authority and Jesus giving him the power and authority to baptize was unnecessary and redundant. In 3 Nephi, 11, 24 through 25, 
Jesus himself gives the exact words to be used when uh, when performing a baptism. Jesus said to Nephi and the others he chose, And now, behold, these are the words which ye shall say, calling them by name, saying, Having authority given of me, Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Compare that to the official wording found in Doctrine and Covenants 2073. Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I know it's a small change, but if the Book of Mormon were truly the most correct book on earth and contained the fullness of the gospel, then there would have been no reason nor justification for changing the wording of the baptismal prayer from that found in the Book of Mormon. 3 Nephi 11.27 is another of the many verses that supports the Trinity instead of the doctrine that is taught in the church. For behold, verily I say unto you, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the Father and I are one. 3 Nephi 11.33-40 teaches that those who are baptized are saved, and there is no mention of any of the multitudes of things that the LDS Church says that a person must do to be saved. And in fact, it even says that if anyone says more or less than this and establishes it for doctrine, then that is evil. There is no better verses, or there's no better section of verses to show that the Book of Mormon does not agree with the doctrines of the LDS Church, and the Church declares a lot more than this as their doctrine. As I have said it before, there is very little Mormonism in the Book of Mormon. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved, and they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me, and is not baptized, shall be damned. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father. And whoso believeth in me, believeth in the Father also. And unto him will the Father bear record of me, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record unto him of the Father and of me. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. And again I say unto you, ye must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name, or you can in no wise receive these things. And again I say unto you, ye must repent and be baptized in my name, and become as a little child, or you can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that this is my doctrine, and whoso buildeth upon this buildeth upon my rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whoso shall declare more or less than this, and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil, and is not built upon my rock, but he buildeth upon a sandy foundation. And the gates of hell stand open to receive such, when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. The next few chapters is mostly the Sermon on the Mount, with some variations. In 3 Nephi 15, 18-19, it says that, Jesus tried to tell the Jews in Jerusalem about the Nephites, but they were stiff-necked and wicked and full of unbelief, so he was commanded not to tell them anything more about it. The thing that makes no sense to me about it is the Jews during the time of Jesus were no more stiff-necked or unbelieving than the people of the Book of Mormon, and it could be argued that the Nephites were even more unbelieving, wicked, and stiff-necked than the Jews, even to the point of being nearly destroyed over and over again. Yet they were told all sorts of amazing things that even the writers of the Bible were not told. I simply can't suspend my disbelief enough 
to buy this blatant contradiction. After preaching to the people for a while and telling them about baptisms and a few other things, Jesus says in 3 Nephi 18.13 that whoever does more or less than this than what he told them is not built upon the rock but a sandy foundation. According to this verse, the LDS Church is on an extremely sandy foundation because most of its key doctrines are found nowhere in the Book of Mormon, including, but not limited to, temple marriage, endowments, marriage being for uh, essential for salvation, or for, for getting to the highest heaven, I mean, and there being more than one heaven, more than one God, baptisms and other works for the dead, tithing, and many, many more. In 3 Nephi 19.13, it says that when they came up out of the water after being baptized, that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. However, it says nothing about the laying out of hands to give them the Holy Ghost. It just came upon them. In the LDS Church, having someone who is the authority from the church lay their hands on the person who has been baptized to give them the Holy Ghost is a big deal. In 3 Nephi 21.10, There is a prophecy about Joseph Smith that failed spectacularly because it says that he will not be hurt. But Joseph Smith was shot and fell from the window of a prison to a hard ground below. And since the encounter killed him, I would have to say that he was hurt and was not healed. Uh, Verse 21.10 says, For in that day, for my sake, shall the Father work a work, which shall be a great and marvelous work among them. And there shall be among them those who will not believe it, even though a man shall declare it unto them. But behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand, therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred because of them. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. In 3 Nephi 26, 11-12, and then verses 16 and 18, it gives us a nonsensical explanation as to why so much of the Book of Mormon does not make sense. As you probably recall, the book, the majority of the Book of Mormon is an abridgment of the original records by a man named Mormon. And there were many times when he said that he only included a small part of what happened. And it sounds as if he intentionally left out the best stuff so that it would be more difficult to believe. There is no logical reason to believe that God would want to make it more difficult to believe in him unless he took joy in seeing people confused and making the wrong choices. But I don't believe that to be the case at all. And those verses say, Behold, I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the place of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it, saying, I will try the faith of my people. Therefore, I, Mormon, do write the things which I have been commanded of the Lord. And now I, Mormon, make an end of my sayings, and proceed to write the things of which I have been commanded of me. Behold, it came to pass that on the morrow that the multitude gathered themselves together, and they both saw and heard these children. Yea, even babes did open their mouths and utter marvelous things, and the things which they did utter were forbidden that there should any man write them. And many of them saw and heard unspeakable things which were not lawful to be written. All through the Book of Mormon, it says that they were that there were great things of God that were forbidden to be written. And in the LDS Church, they keep a lot of aspects of the church secreted away from the outside world to the best of their abilities. But that is the exact opposite of what Jesus himself did. 
as we read in John 18.20, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught it in synagogues or at the temples where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. In the first half of 3 Nephi, chapter 27, Jesus tells the people that in order for a church to be his church, it has to be named after him. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, likes to teach that they are the correct church because they have Jesus Christ in the name. However, there are a lot of churches with Jesus or Christ in the name, and the Mormon Church has not always had the name of Jesus Christ uh, in their name. Uh, The church was once called uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, and the church was, there were several other variations of that uh, before they came to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In 3 Nephi 27.33 is one of the many verses in the Book of Mormon that makes it clear that the book does not support the doctrine of works for the dead, and instead teaches that once you have died, it's over, and you have no more chances. And it came to pass that when Jesus had ended these sayings, he said unto his disciples, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for the straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few be there be that find it. But wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leads to death, and many there be that travel therein, until the night cometh, wherein no man can work. In the book of Third Nephi, Jesus calls twelve apostles in America, like he did in Jerusalem which never really made sense to me because that would basically be having two independent churches, and the LDS Church is clearer in their doctrine that there is only one true church. Before uh, before Jesus leaves the Americas, he asks his uh, 12 apostles that he called what they want him to do for him when he goes to heaven. And nine of them asked to die at 72 years old and to be speedily taken up to the kingdom of God. The other three are ashamed to ask for what they want, but Jesus knows what they are thinking, and he grants them their request, which is to remain on earth until the second coming. And these three apostles are known as the three Nephites. There are all sorts of LDS legends and stories about people who supposedly encountered the three Nephites, which I don't have time to go into right now, but a quick Google search should bring up some amusing stories. And actually, at some point, I would like to have a show that is just about LDS folklore, but I guess I don't have really that time to go into it right now. Anyway, the story of the three Nephites uh, comes from 3 Nephi 28, 7-8. And he said unto them, Behold, I know your thoughts, and ye have desired the thing which John, my beloved, who was with me in my ministry before, that I, was, before I was lifted up by the Jews, desired of me. Therefore, more blessed are ye, for ye shall never taste of death, but ye shall live to behold all things of the do- of the Father unto the children of men, even until all things shall be fulfilled according to the will of the Father, when I shall come in my glory with the power of heaven. And ye shall never endure the pains of death, but when I shall come in my glory, ye shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye from mortality to immortality, and then ye shall be blessed in the kingdom of my Father. Third Nephi 28, 6-8 the problem with this is that John the Revelator did, in fact, die. He died in Ephesus after escaping his banishment from the island of Patmos. Some people mistakenly think that Jesus told John that he wouldn't die, but the Bible clears this matter up. 
It says in John 21, 20 through 22, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? Jesus wasn't saying that John would never die. He was telling Peter to worry about his assignment and to let John worry about his. Like a parent who tells her son, Tom, to clean his room, and he responds with, Well, what about Billy? The parent would likely respond back with, Don't worry about Billy. Just do what I told you to do. I'll worry about Billy. The book of 3 Nephi ends with a self-prophecy about the coming of the Book of Mormon and warns that all those who reject the book and the church that is founded upon it will be cursed. It's difficult for anyone who looks at any evidence with an open mind to take the Book of Mormon seriously because of how poorly it is written and because of all the holes, contradictions, and other errors. The Book of Mormon says that things were left out so that God could try our faith. But God has never asked us to blindly believe things with a complete lack of evidence. Believing things with no evidence is madness and leads to, among other things, people making themselves eunuchs or performing double mastectomies, wearing matching costumes and then drinking poison, fully expecting that an extraterrestrial Jesus is going to beam them up into a spaceship that is following the comet Hellbob. While Christianity is at heart a faith, and parts have to be taken on faith. Archaeologists and other branches of science are constantly finding evidence to support aspects of the Bible. But in all of the excavations and other research done, no one has ever been able to find any evidence that would conclusively prove even a single aspect of the Book of Mormon. Even if the spiritual aspects of the Bible are made up, which I don't believe them to be, there is evidence for the political and military conflicts contained within its pages. The same cannot be said for the book that claims to be the most correct book on earth. The book upon which the entire structure of the LDS Church stands. The next installment of this series will start with the book of 4th Nephi. And I'm going to attempt to reach the end of the Book of Mormon, which will conclude the Book of Mormon which could be possible since the majority of the problems in the remaining books are recycled problems from earlier. The issues in the rest of the book that I will probably spend the most time on are the Jaredite barges and the Moroni promise that God will tell people if the book is true. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you next episode. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.